You're listening to the Citrus Church Podcast. Now, here's the message. Um, but welcome, everybody. If you're uh, joining in and maybe you came in a little bit later, my name is Brian. I serve as the pastor. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, what we're doing is we're looking together at the book of Joshua. And so uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking together at the book of Joshua, and we've hit a lot of the highlights. Um, and what we're doing is kind of taking a slower walk through some of these Old Testament books as a whole. Sometimes on Sundays we get these like snippets and we get these great stories, but we don't get kind of the big picture of what God's doing. And so my hope was that we could take some time and kind of slow it down. We could go kind of almost book by book. And so what we're doing is looking at Joshua, which is one of the histories that talks about Israel after they've come out of Egypt, after they've wandered through the desert, and as they're going into the promised land of Palestine, as we know today. And so I mean, for all intents and purposes, the book is over. Uh, Last week, we talked about them crossing over, um, them setting up uh, these stones. We talked about them uh, going and defeating Jericho. And and that's in like the first seven chapters. The next kind of 20 chapters in the book are pretty dry. Uh, So if you notice, we're going all the way over to chapter 20. It's a lot of when they entered the land, this tribe was given this area, and these are the boundaries of it. And this tribe was given this land, and these are the boundaries of it. And there's just chapter after chapter, kind of, kind of nuance, and, and it's significant, and it's important. And I almost missed the passage today, because as we're going through all this nuance and this detail, which is really important, because it tells each tribe of Israel kind of where they'll live, what their boundaries are, and divides up the land. There's this kind of short passage in chapter 20 that gives us something unique. And before we get to next week, which is the end of the book, which has a really beautiful summary, uh, it's probably the summary that may be on some of the plaques in your homes where it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's next week. That's in the last part. This one, chapter 20, pops up, and we almost miss it. So I wanted us to take a look at it this morning. So we'll be looking this morning at Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. And it begins by saying, the Lord spoke to Joshua, say to the Israelites, set up refuge cities for yourselves. I spoke to you about this through Moses. Anyone who kills by striking down someone unintentionally or by mistake may flee there. These places may be a refuge for you and any member of the victim's family seeking revenge. The killer will flee to one of these cities, stand at the entrance of the city gate, and explain their situation to the elders of that city. The elders are to let the killer into the city and provide a place of refuge for the killer to live with them. If a member of the victim's family follows, of course, seeking revenge, they won't hand the killer over. This is because the killer struck down the neighbor by accident and hasn't been an enemy in the past. The killer will live in the city until there can be a trial before the community or until the death of the one who is the high priest at that time. Then the killer may return home, back to the city from which the flight began. So they set apart Kadesh and Galilee and the highlands of Napatali, Shechem in the highlands of Ephraim, and Kirith Araba, that is Hebron, in the highlands of Judah. On the other side of the Jordan, east of Jericho, if you'll remember there were two tribes that stayed on the other side of Jordan, these are the cities for them, They set up Bezer in the wasteland on the plateau from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. And uh, verse 9 really serves as a summary of all that just came before. 
And it says, these cities were the ones designated for all the Israelites and for the immigrants residing among them. Anyone who struck down a person by mistake could flee there and escape death at the hand of some member of the victim's family seeking revenge until there could be a trial before the community. And this one jumped out to me because it was just so different than what had come before it. It was so unique in the way that it was, and it really just kind of outlines what to do when things go wrong. I love that in this division of land and division of property, there's a recognition that life won't always be perfect, even though we've entered the promised land. There's a, there's a sermon in itself, right? Uh, and so, of course, uh, here, here's just kind of an image that gives us an idea of that. And, and I think this really captures the essence of it. This is something real. Someone who kills someone by accident, and, of course, a family member on the side who is seeking vengeance and revenge, chasing after them. And there's a provision made for something like this. Now, in, in modern terms, what we would call this is involuntary manslaughter. When someone is killed or murdered and it wasn't premeditated, it wasn't thought of ahead of time, if there's any lawyers in the room, you can probably kind of see how this shakes out from different kinds of things. And the idea here is that this person can go and seek refuge. And so they establish something that at the time is, is pretty unique and pretty um, surprising. It's pretty countercultural. And they establish these different cities of refuge, and they're all scattered throughout the land. And they're, they're scattered throughout so that everyone has a short distance to travel to get to them. It's not supposed to be an additional burden. It's supposed to be a safety net. And so there are six of these conveniently located close to you so that in your time of need, you can easily reach the city of refuge. And the idea is that at the gate, there'd be some city elders. Now, in those times, city elders um, wouldn't kind of sit in like a town hall. The town hall was the city gate. And so all your, your city leadership hung out at the gate. And so when you arrive there, you encounter the city leadership, and they're given instructions to let this person come in. And not just to let this person in, but to hear their case, to listen to what they've said, to, to maybe not assume before they've heard. But they're also under obligation to provide them a place to live and to reside while they're there. We might call that a type, of, a type of house arrest. But it's a place of safety where their life can be spared until a speedy trial is brought. A, a trial of the community is brought together to hear out the facts and to hear out the truth. And maybe this doesn't sound that monumental to us, but I want to remind us that in those days and times, this was the law of the land. If someone killed one of your family members, the law of the land was you could take vengeance, right? You are judge, jury, and executioner. You are judge dread. Can I make a movie reference from a while back, right? And that was the way things operated. Whether you were innocent or guilty was simply determined by whoever was coming after you and what they thought. And so what I want us to see here is that while this may not sound um, that unique and insightful to us in modern times, what I see God doing here is beginning to push the boundaries forward to beginning to say, this is how it is, but this is how it will be different. Last week when we talked about Jericho, we talked about this idea of unfolding light and that God doesn't reveal everything about God's self from Genesis 1, that humans have to learn over time as we grow, as we learn more and more about who God is. 
And the Israelites learned a lot about God through that time in the wilderness, but they still didn't know everything. And God was always at work to say, here's the culture as it is, but here's a vision of what it can be. And this passage here really begins a theme that we see in Scripture time and time again where God says, I see where you are, but here's where I want you to go as humanity. Instead of taking into your own hands, judge, jury, and executioner, give space for the truth to come out. Give space for someone to be heard. Give space to gather the facts. And I want to ask you to think about how significant this is. Think about a time, not if, but a time, when you feel that you were judged wrongly. When someone assumed something about you or assumed something that you did, and to the best of your ability, you tried to let them know that, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. No, that's not how it went down. No, that's not how that happened. But they'd already decided your truth for you. I think if we raised our hands, all of us have been in a situation like that in our life where we have been wrongly judged. And what I hear this passage saying is, give time for the truth to come out. that, That only comes out when there's a system where someone who has been accused has a place of safety, and when others can begin to gather around and bring a trial. And so what I see happening here is, once again, God is saying to the Israelites, you will be different than the nations around you. In the New Testament, Jesus will say, you have heard it said but I say to you. And it's all this idea that God is trying to put forth the vision of what the life in the world can be. And so here what we see is that true justice matters to God. And that life, someone's actual tangible life matters to God. And that it's not left up to vengeance or the decision of of one family member who may know the facts may not. And so what they're doing is learning that God's way will be countercultural to the way that they live and to the way that they live around their neighbors. Now, this is a really neat idea in the Old Testament, and just as soon as that story ends, it kind of moves on and wraps up the rest of the book. But what I begin to see here is what we've seen along the way in the Old Testament is that a lot of these stories in the Old Testament begin to prefigure what will happen in the New And so while God calls Israel to establish these cities of refuge, what we begin to see is that Jesus, when Jesus comes on the scene, offers a type and a new type of refuge. And so what I want to do this morning is look at how Jesus is prefigured in this and how this begins to take shape. And so in the New Testament, we begin to get verses. Now we're jumping hundreds of years ahead. Uh, But what we begin to see in the New Testament here is something like Romans 3 where it says, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Jesus Christ. And so what the New Testament begins to ascribe is that all of us, whether the one fleeing to the city of refuge or the one chasing someone to the city of refuge, whether the person who believes that they are right or the person who is the victim... It just makes a blanket statement, which I honestly kind of, kind of is as comforting as rubbing sandpaper on your arm, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so the New Testament tells us that all of us find ourselves in need of refuge. 
all of us find that we have done something wrong, we have lived in such a way, or that we are sinners. We'll come back to that thought. But it tells us that that all sin is equal, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it's big, like murder, (laughs) whether it's little, like a white lie. And maybe that doesn't sound fair, but in a sense that becomes good news. If all sin is equal and if all of us have sinned, then what Jesus does for us is truly something special and unique. And so whereas in the Old Testament there was a need for a physical city of refuge, what we see as it shifts into the New Testament is it moves from a city to a person. And so all of us have sinned, but in Jesus there becomes a person of refuge, a place, a person that we can go to to find forgiveness. And so in the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus say, I am the gate. See if you can kind of catch the language from Joshua. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, Jesus in this particular passage is talking about sheep and making a metaphor there. But when I hear these scriptures together, what it reminds me is that Jesus becomes that city gate. That when someone who is fleeing to it, who has either done something wrong or been wrongly accused, can find someone who will hear them out. Someone who will meet them there to hear their story, to give them a place of refuge, and allow enough time for truth to shake out. And so then, the last verse here I wanted to share as we make these correlations come from 2 Corinthians 5.10. When it says, we all must appear before Christ in court. Uh, Maybe your Bible puts more language on there like, as our judge. But again, we're going with this courtroom metaphor. So we all must appear before Christ in court so that each person can be paid back for the things that were done while in the body, whether they were good or bad. Now again, there's a lot more nuance to this verse. But what I hear in this is that there's a reminder that when we come to this place of refuge, when we come to this one, the one who is the judge is Jesus. That's significant for a lot of reasons. What it tells us, though, is that at this place, that all are welcome. If all have sinned, then all of us have need of this gate, and all of us will find at that gate Jesus. And perhaps we'll come to this in just a second. There is a judge, but there is a sense of welcome, a sense of listening, a sense of safety, and a desire for God's truth. And so at this place where all are welcome, we maybe heard this and maybe you caught this. It was interesting because in, in Joshua, uh, it began by just saying, if anyone in the, in the nation of Israel, which is the people of Israel, remember there are other nations around at the time, if anyone in, unintentionally kills someone, they can run to this place. Verse 9 is funny because it adds something to it. In verse 9, it's not up there on the screen, but it says... These cities were designated for all the Israelites and, y'all remember the and in there? And for immigrants residing among them. That word pops up time and time again in the Old Testament. And it's a reminder to Israel to think of yourselves and those who are living with you. The the native-born Israelite and the person who's living with you. The immigrant, the refugee, the outsider. All of them, all of you are treated as equal. 
And I love that provision from God in there because it reminds us that at this place of refuge, the question on the form when they get there that the elders are checking off is not Jewish or not, right? Insider or not? Immigrant? Native. God strikes that question from there and says, all who need a place of refuge are welcome. And so sometimes, like we talked about in, Jer- in, in the story of Jericho last week, it's hard to see God in the Old Testament because some of the stories that stick out and that we learn are the ones where we see God in a very violent structure. I want to remind us that there's other places in the Old Testament where we see God beginning to put this vision of what the world can be. And again, this is carried over in the New Testament in one of my favorite places in Galatians where the letter to the church in Galatia is this news There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's these echoes from old into new of the kind of community, the kind of world that God is trying to create. A place of refuge for all. And so then what this tells me is that this gives us a pattern for how to live as the church today. So we've seen the Old Testament. We've seen how Jesus takes this idea, places it, and even expands it. Right? And then what does that mean for us, the community of Christ today? Obviously, Jesus is the one who instituted the church. But I've always loved this quote from Abigail Van Buren, uh, Dear Abby, when she says, A church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. I've been to some museum for saints churches, have y'all, <laughs> right? But I always love this idea that at the core, at the heart, a church is a hospital for sinners. There's a pastor out on the West Coast, her name is Nadia Bowles Weber, and she has this way of uh, starting off her services. Their church is called, uh, I think, the Church of All Saints and Sinners. And she has this way of starting off her services by saying, good morning, saints. And I think every one of us would feel comfortable saying good morning. And then she says, good morning, sinners. I think we naturally respond to that one differently. If someone says, good morning, saints, I'm open to responding to that. If someone says, good morning, sinners, I'm thinking like, hey, what do you know? (laughs) You know? But I like that because in the understanding of the New Testament and the Old, we are both sinners and saints. We are those who get it wrong, and we are made saints because of the work of Christ. And we can, we can embrace both of those things because of who Jesus is. And oftentimes, I think the church has felt more like a place for saints than sinners. But I'm reminded that when Jesus gathers the church together, that he establishes a place that is supposed to be a refuge. What would it look like if someone's first thought was, I messed up, I should go to church? I think a lot of times our first thought is like, I messed up. That's the last place I need to go. Because we have these ideas and these notions of a God who is, who is vindicative and, and almost chasing us down with the sword like we saw in that first image. But the church ought to be a safe place to run and to find safety and to find welcome and to find forgiveness. And so... With this idea, it was expanded a little bit by Pope Francis. Pope Francis, I took what Dear Abby said in such clear words and expanded it a little bit, but it's helpful. 
when he said, I see clearly that the thing the church needs the most today is the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. It needs nearness, proximity. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. A place where we can bring all the mess and be welcomed as we are. Because all the rest of us are just as messed up, right? We all have just as much going on in our lives. Right? We're all individuals looking for Christ. And so what this passage begins to ask me is, is that still true today? And I think there's one core question that we can ask to understand, is the church a place of, of, of refuge? And it's this one. Who is the judge? Going back to the cities of refuge, the judge was the elders who would welcome someone, but they didn't make a judgment. They would gather the community together in time and form a trial. In the New Testament, the church is never positioned as the judge. The only one who is in a place to judge is the one who knows all truth, which is Jesus. And so in a sense, we, we see those tattoos all the time that are always spelled wrong, like only God can judge me or like no regrets, you know, those kind of ones. But in a sense, like those are right. Unfortunately, oftentimes we, we mix up our role as the church and as individual followers of Jesus because we think what God has called us to do is to be the judge and to be the jury and to be the executioner of God's will and God's way as we see it. And unfortunately, the truth is, is that typically we don't know enough, we don't have enough light, and we just don't know the full scope of truth. We don't know each other's hearts. And so we are not in a position to judge, but I don't have to tell you all that because if you've been around the church for any period of time, you know that, unfortunately, we're known more for our judgment than we are for being a field hospital, a place for sinners, a community of broken people who know Jesus, right? A community of forgiveness. And so this passage reminds us that if we will allow Jesus to be the judge, we can take on a different role. And so I want to offer to you this morning that the role that we have is not judge, jury, and executioner, but as the church, we are the elders at the gate. We are the elders at the gate. And do you remember what the elders did? When someone came up to them, what was the first thing that they would do as the elders? Holler it out. Do you remember? Like a test. Who said that? Let them in? Yes. Okay. And then they would listen to the story, and they provide for them sanctuary, refuge, place of safety, and then they would begin to gather the truth together, right? That's a great model for us as the church, to be the elders at the gate, the people around the city, around our workplaces, around our communities, around our friends, whose first question is not, what have you done wrong? But tell me your story, right? I'm here to listen. And then here's a safe place. Here's a place where you can be taken care of, a place where you can be welcomed, a place where you can be accepted, because we all know that none of us are perfect, right? Maybe our sins look different, but here we are together. And then we have an opportunity to be those who seek truth. So what I want to offer to us is that our job is to listen, to learn, to heal, and to welcome. And I like that, because sometimes being the judge is just too hard. Uh, one of my favorite TV shows uh, came out recently. How many of y'all have seen Ted Lasso? 
Okay, and this is not a paid promotion, though. If they want to send anything this way, we're fine. Um, I love Ted Lasso. I, didn't, I wasn't sure if I'd like it at first, but I loved it um, so much that it kind of stuck with me. And I, I found a sticker that somehow Facebook identified that I want this sticker, and so I bought this sticker. And, and it's Ted Lasso with one of his famous lines saying, be curious, not judgmental. Uh, and I put it where I put a lot of my stickers, which is on my sermon writing notebook. And I always love that because I think in this context, it's a reminder that the job of the church is to be curious and not judgmental. Be a community of people who are interested in getting to know the others in the community. And to leave the judgment to someone else because that was never our job in the first place. And so what I want to invite us to do as the church is to remember our place and to remember who we are. To remember that who God has called us to be is not the judge and the jury and the executioner. We don't have to carry the mantle and the sword of keeping God's word or name alive in the world. That's not our battle to fight. Ours is to be the elders who listen, who welcome, who provide a place of refuge, and who cultivate a community of forgiveness. And so with that in mind, I want to simply bring us back again to verse 9 and remind us how we can see this today. And where it says cities, it says, these, maybe we can substitute and say, these churches were the ones designated for all Israelites and immigrants. We could just change that for anyone. Maybe anyone who's been misunderstood, anyone who's been mislabeled, maybe someone who has done something wrong or someone who has not. And each of these are places where someone can find refuge for the community. So simply, once again, I want to remind us as the church is that our place is never to keep anyone out, but to always create a place of welcome and hospitality and warmth for all. And each time we do that, each opportunity we have, and every time we get it right, when we are listening and when we are welcoming, we're living the way of Jesus. And we're creating heaven on earth. And so with that in mind, I want to invite us into uh, the meal of forgiveness. And what I love about sharing communion together is that it's a meal for saints and for sinners. And that the first time Jesus shared this meal, he had names like Peter and John at the table and Judas. And he already knew that Judas would betray him, right? And so at the table, there's room for all of us. Judas chose to leave the table, but Jesus never had Judas leave the table. He was always welcome. He would always been welcome back. And so this is a table of refuge. This is a place for the native and for the immigrant, right? Those of us who feel worthy to receive the bread and the cup and those of us who don't. This is a place for us to confess and to receive forgiveness. Thanks for listening. Make sure to visit our website, citruschurch.org. If you found refreshments in this message, share it with a friend. And hey, God loves you.